0: Welcome to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, a podcast about those life-altering experiences that shape who we are today, and those times when we were not totally fine. I'm your host, Tiffany Philippou, and I've written a memoir, Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest who'll tell me their story about a time that they pretended to be totally fine. I know what it's like to pretend to be okay, and that's what my book is about. After my boyfriend Richard died by suicide, I spent most of my twenties pretending that this never happened. I know that it's not just what happens to us, but the stigma we feel and how we suppress it that's the real problem. So here's why we're having these conversations, to quiet the shame monster, and to remind us that we're not alone. Being totally
1: fine? includes the full spectrum of human emotion like you are supposed to sometimes be sad and angry and disappointed and grieving unfortunately
0: why do you think when we know that we still have that urge to not sit still it sucks
1: like who wants to who wants to just sit and think about whatever horrible thing has happened to them This idea that there are these stages that you walk yourself through and then bye-bye grief is just false. And I think it creates a lot of unnecessary pain and confusion.
0: Today, I'm joined by Marissa Renee Lee. Marissa is a writer, speaker, entrepreneur, and has written for the likes of Glamour, CNN, Refinery 29, and many others. And her book, Grief is Love, Living with Loss, is out now. Marissa is also the founder of several organisations, including Beacon Advisors, a social impact consulting firm, Supportal, a platform for people who've experienced a life-changing challenge, and The Pink Agenda, a breast cancer nonprofit founded in honour of her mother, Lisa. In 2010, Marissa joined the Obama administration. And prior to that was a Harvard graduate and started her career in banking. Marissa lives in DC with her husband, her son and their dog. Marissa wrote, true resilience is about learning how to face your pains, to accept them as part of who you are, and then to incorporate the struggles into your life in a way that is meaningful to you. It's about not getting over the things that hurt us, but finding a way to let them transform us. You can live a big and beautiful life even after experiencing immense sorrow. You don't move on from the hard stuff, you move through it, and you learn how to live with life's challenges. Welcome to the show, Marissa.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And a great quote you pulled out there. I sometimes forget the things I've said.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's so true and so brilliant. And I'm so excited to delve in and talk to you more about your experience of grief and loss and learning how to move through all these things and pretending to be fine. But before we get onto that, huge congratulations on your book. Um, I'm guessing you're in the midst of deep book promo now. How is that all going?
1: Oh yes, uh, it, is, it is a bit of a slog. Um, you know, you, you think when you create something that if it's good, it'll just sell itself. But it turns out that's actually not how it works. So I'm spending a lot of my time not only you know, talking to folks like yourself about the book and my experiences with grief, but also Literally harassing every single person I've met in the last 39 years if I think that there's something they can do to help me sell this book. Um, so it is definitely, it is definitely a process. And I'm really grateful that for the most part, people are really responsive to this message that grief is not something you get over. It's something that you learn how to live with. And I think. Sadly, a lot of people are experiencing that firsthand right now, you know, between the losses we've all endured during this global pandemic and also, you know, war as it continues to escalate in Europe.
0: And before we get into the story, what is it like sharing something so vulnerable with the world and talking about it over and over again and having these types of conversations?
1: It is super uncomfortable. You know, I realized a couple days ago that there is definitely some anxiety that I have around how the book will perform, largely because I'm just so invested in it. You know, like this is this is my story. This is my mom's story. This is how I've dealt with, you know, the hardest most challenging heartbreaking things that have happened to me in life and because writing thankfully comes really naturally even writing about the hard things i didn't really process that part of it you know the public exposure part of it i guess as i was writing the book but now that i am in the business of selling the book you know, seeing how people do and don't respond, you know, I'm realizing that that's something that I can't take personally, even though it's a deeply personal story. So yeah, it's, it is a constant learning experience.
0: Well, let's get into it. Should we get into your story? Um, it's yeah, so hard it. not to, to talk to you without us getting there, which I think is says, yeah. it says a lot, on, it says a lot within itself about how you, um, how it impacts it and it seeps through through everything that you do. Um, so do tell us, uh, what is the experience that you're gonna share with us today?
1: So when I was 13, my mom got sick one day and she never got better. And it took years and a number of misdiagnoses to ultimately land on multiple sclerosis. So she was sick from the time I was 13 until I was getting ready to graduate from college. And in my senior year in college, she became even sicker than she had been during my adolescence. And doctors, once again, you know, couldn't figure out what was going on, why she was experiencing so much pain regularly in and out of the hospital. And it turned out, in addition to her MS, she also had developed stage four breast cancer, which... You know, I didn't I didn't know a whole lot about cancer at 22, but I knew stage four cancer was essentially a death sentence. And so we found that out just a few days before I graduated from college. So I actually took a year off and helped my mom and dad figure out how to navigate that health situation and even you know, when I did re-enter the workforce a year later, I still spent a lot of time as one of my mom's caretakers until she passed away one day in February of 2008. So she had just turned 49 and I had just turned 25. And I thought that at 25, you know, I thought I was an adult. I went through high school and college. I was in my first job. You know, I felt like a grown up, and so I couldn't understand why it was so hard for me to lose a parent. You know, I was I was devastated, and I didn't know. I not only didn't know what to do with all of these complex feelings and emotions, but I worried that if I acknowledged them, I would be overwhelmed by them, and that would take me off course in life. You know, like if I really admitted how bad the grief was, would I be able to work? Would I be able to, you know, run the breast cancer charity that I started on the side? Like what would happen to me in my life if I was honest about just how painful it was? And so I wasn't honest about it. Um, You know, I didn't, I didn't tell the full truth of what I was experiencing. I tried as much as possible to be, You know, totally fine and ignore it. And as I got older and, you know, got into the relationship that would become my marriage, I started to talk about it a little bit more, but still felt embarrassed and ashamed for having so many feelings about something so ordinary. You know, a dead parent, like everybody's parents die. Like, what's the big deal? That's what I used to say to myself. And then In 2019, my husband and I lost a much-wanted pregnancy after a lot of time and money and work and physical hardship and mental hardship on both of us. And when I lost that pregnancy, the only thing I wanted in the world was my mother. You know, she'd been dead for over a decade, and I can remember just being curled up in a ball On the floor of our bathroom, like too physically sick and exhausted to move or even cry. And, you know, all I wanted was my mom. And a few months after we lost the pregnancy, the entire world shut down and we all found ourselves living in the midst of a global pandemic. And so, I was forced to really process my grief, you know, the grief of the pregnancy loss, the grief of having a body that just would not perform the way that I wanted it to, the grief of not having my mom around to comfort me during this loss, the grief that we all experienced as any sense of normalcy was ripped away one weekend in March in 2020. And so as I wrote about, you know, my feelings and what I was experiencing, I realized you don't get over it. You know, there is this idea that when someone dies, you know, grief is acceptable for a few days, you know, maybe a few weeks, but then you go back to work, you go back to your life and you move on. And I realized that's just not true. Like there, there is no moving on from or getting over foundational losses like the person you lost is core to who you are and so what you have to do is figure out how to live with it and so I came to a place where I redefined grief as the repeated experience of learning to live after experiencing a significant loss and that is the basis of this book
0: and if I go back a little bit to how you did bury it in that initial stages when you were so young and you were 25. Um, Would you be able to tell us a little bit more, obviously only with hindsight, as you've had the ability to process of how you did pretend to be fine and march on. Could you talk to tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, so I will give you, this is probably the, I think one of the best and most tangible examples of me pretending to be fine not being fine and not acknowledging the depths of how, you know, not fine. I really was. Um, So I was, I was back at work two weeks after we buried my mom. You know, like I thought being fine, which is what I promised her I would be meant moving on with my life. And every morning I would get up feeling like I wanted to die And I would get myself showered and dressed and ready to go. And I was pretty okay until I started to climb the stairs out of the subway on Wall Street. And as I walked up those stairs every morning for months, I would start to get a panic attack. And I would get myself up the stairs, you know, walk the two blocks to my office building, get inside and go down to the basement where the bank I worked at at the time had a training center that I knew was empty in the winter months. So I would go down to the basement, I would hide down there, have my full-on panic attack, hysterical crying, like makeup destroyed, etc. Reapply my makeup. One of my friends who worked at the bank would bring me a Xanax, a latte, and a cookie. And we did this routine five days a week, for months, and just acted like it was fine. You know, we were kids. Like, we didn't know. She did what she could to help, and it was incredibly helpful. You know, I needed that Xanax and that caffeine to get through the day. But there was never a moment where I said, you know, this is pretty bad. You know, maybe I should try and find a new therapist if my current therapist can't help me figure this out you know maybe i should take some more time off like those those thoughts never entered my mind it was just i guess this is what it looks like to be fine after your mom dies
0: and i also imagine it wasn't just that you went back to work you went back to work at wall street um as a young associate and i imagine that work was extremely grueling and especially as a young black woman as well to be in that environment um I, with my own experience of grief, I found I used work as a kind of what I describe in my book as a socially acceptable numbing technique. Is that something? And when I was reading your book, I, 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 well, I'm going to ask whether that's something you would say you did as well, but it came through to me reading that that's something that perhaps you also did.
1: Oh, I absolutely did that. And it was something that, even before I went through the processing of you know everything that I wrote in the book, when we lost our pregnancy in 2019, I knew that I could use my work as a place to hide. Uh, that's that's always how I thought of it. You know, even when even when I was a kid, and you know. Not processing the challenges that come with a sick parent. Instead of dealing with those challenges, you know, and maybe working them out in therapy or something like that, I threw myself into being the best kid at everything you can imagine. You know, I started my first nonprofit before I could drive. Like, I was going to crush it, uh, you know, professionally, at least what professionally was when you're in high school um no matter what was going on with my mom and because that was that was the like sort of early ethos and my one of my first coping mechanisms for dealing with hardship i absolutely did the same thing when she died you know like i the, the fact that i didn't even question whether or not i should be at work and some of that was out of necessity you know i did need the money but I just, I never thought differently about what I was doing because I felt like if I can keep my professional life on track, that must mean that I'm okay. And work was hard, you know, as a young first generation, like black woman in a very white, conservative, old school financial institution at the height of the global financial crisis. Um, But I also really enjoyed it. You know, I, I had fun there. I knew I was appreciated, I knew my work was valued, and these were also the people who supported me when my mom was sick and dying. And so as hard as it was, it I do think there were aspects of it that were good for me. I think I probably just needed more time and other outlets for really processing my emotions as opposed to, you know, burying them in the basement with a Xanax and a latte.
0: Were there any other coping mechanisms you adopted during that time and after?
1: Yes. So one of the other things I did was I filled up my calendar. I had way too many things on my plate because at least if I had stuff to do, I knew I wouldn't be stuck just feeling like shit. So like the the busyness definitely became a coping mechanism. You know, I had my job that I worked at full time. And then I also was running a nonprofit on the side and I was dating as much as I possibly could have at the time. You know, mostly people who, frankly, whose names I don't remember um, because I just felt like, you know, if I, if I have stuff to do that, I, I thought that would help me, you know, and I think, I think some of that is true. Again, it's, I really do believe that when it comes to coping with the hard things, it's all about a balancing act. And it's about being honest about what you need. And I think there are times when I probably needed to just be at home under the covers, feeling sad when I made myself do stuff. And that always kind of blows up on you. I realized when we lost our pregnancy that Like you can have distractions from your grief. Like you can absolutely experience joy even in the midst of heartache and loss, but only if you're honest about what it is you need at any given moment. When we don't tell the truth and we try to bury or ignore these difficult emotions, that's when they get worse. Um, So yeah, one of my other coping mechanisms, I know this won't come as a big surprise, is writing. Writing. Like that's, you know, I wrote to get stuff out of my head to process this pain in the only external way that I could in the early weeks and months of the pandemic. And it definitely helped.
0: So is writing something that came a bit later as part of the processing?
1: I actually did writing as well after my mom died and before she died and pulled some content from those old notebooks into this book. But I got more, I got more aggressive and sort of process oriented around writing during the pandemic, you know, making myself just sit down and write whatever comes up every morning for a few minutes, you know, just like, what, what are you really feeling? I think for me, being able to see on paper, like what I'm feeling, what's going on inside my mind, inside my body has always been really helpful.
0: And what do you think it was that meant that you felt such a strong need to be totally fine with your grief? I think
1: shame definitely plays a part. I think that because of the way our culture treats grief and really any emotion that isn't a thousand percent positive you know you are expected to be positive and happy and all good things all the time like i think that's why so many people pretend to be fine because the expectation of what is presented out into the world is supposed to be something positive and I just think that isn't true and it robs us of deeper connections with one another you know when you're not telling the truth about what you're going through about what you're experiencing other people can't support you you know they can't even have a real conversation with you if you don't know and so I think as a young person I felt like there were all of these expectations around what grief was. And as someone who was already an outlier in a lot of the spaces that I was in, you know, young, black, female, um, I felt like I didn't need something else to make me stand out. I also felt like, you know, being super emotional and sad was just not an acceptable way to behave and I think we've gotten better at some of this stuff since then, you know, you have to remember this is 2008. It was a long time ago. Um, but there is still a lot of shame and judgment around grief and also, you know, a litany of mental health conditions. Like I think, I think people still feel like if they're not, okay, you know, if they're not totally fine, that people are judging them for not being so. And I want people to know that being totally fine includes the full spectrum of human emotion. Like you are supposed to sometimes be sad and angry and disappointed and grieving, unfortunately, that's just, that's just a part of life.
0: I have I've never heard it phrased in that way before. Being totally fine includes the broad range of human emotion. That's what you said, and I think that's really powerful. Yeah.
1: yeah, because I mean, the thing that I think is really important for people to understand is, you know, we are born, we arrive with a baseline set of emotions, and half of them, like fear, and sadness and anger are things that we judge as bad but how can they be bad if they're the things that we're born expecting to feel um so i just i want i want to debunk the idea that totally fine means totally positive all of the time because it's just not true so let's
0: talk a bit about the moments before the processing so it sounds to me like the pandemic the big the 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 great pause that was inflicted on all of us was really the time that this happened for you can you tell us more about that
1: yeah i i thought because i had gone through the loss of my mother that i would know exactly what to do and i would know exactly what i needed on the other side of this pregnancy loss. And it just wasn't, it wasn't working. You know, like I was accessing therapy. I was getting rest when I could. I was working out. I was journaling, you know, I was doing all of the things. I was checking all of the boxes. And when we were all forced to pause and I couldn't check all of those boxes in the same way as before, you know, I couldn't, go meet a friend for coffee when I was feeling sad. I couldn't sit in person with my therapist. I couldn't go to church. You know, when all of those things went away and I was forced to spend more time alone, it was then that I realized just how unhappy I was. You know, I really, really wanted that baby. And I felt like I had done everything I literally let someone electrocute my uterus at one point. Like no joke, I have the pictures to show it. Like I literally did everything I could have to create a successful outcome. And as someone who is frankly accustomed to a certain level of professional success to do all of the right things and still not get the outcome that you feel like you are entitled to, you know, the thing that you feel like you deserve, it just, it left me completely confused and overwhelmed. You know, like I, I like couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that I did all the things and I still didn't get what I wanted. And we had no clear plan for how we would move forward growing our family. And we had spent tens of thousands of dollars. So it's just gone. And so when I was forced to grapple with all of it, and also the fact that, you know, my mom wasn't here to help guide me through any of it. And then on top of all of that, I was still feeling physically unwell because of the pregnancy loss and an underlying health condition. And, you know, when all the distractions were taken away, I was just forced to sit and be miserable like I'm talking to you now from the floor of my office and the amount of times my husband came in that spring of 2020 to find me on the floor of my office, like curled up in a ball crying. I mean, it was just, it was, it was a lot. And then when you add to all of that, everything that was happening by late spring around race in this country and the murder of George Floyd, like, I realized I had a lot of things to process and I had a lot of things to say. And so I I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And eventually there was an article that went somewhat viral about how we don't get over these things. And that led to the book that people can now buy. Um, but it was, it was definitely a process. And it, honestly, it was a lot of me just being honest about what I was feeling, even if every day for a while I was just feeling miserable.
0: And as you said, I think that honesty is so important or integral to part of the process. It's almost where it all begins.
1: Exactly, exactly. Telling the truth about your experience even if you can only tell it, you know, to yourself via writing it down in a notebook or a journal, I just think is so important. Like you deserve to acknowledge the depth of your pain, no matter how uncomfortable it may make other people.
0: And something you brought up, which I noticed before, is you talk, you talk about racism as a form of grief. And, and, and So our listeners can understand what you mean by that. But also, it seems like there was an honesty and confronting that also happened with that realization as well during this time. So yeah, can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, I realized as we watched George Floyd's murder and everything that unfolded afterwards, you know, when you think about the rallying cry, Black Lives Matter, like what folks are really asking for is, sadly, for their lives to truly matter, like for this country to assign like real love and value to Black life. You know, people only really seem to pay attention to Black culture and Black death. And so I came to view racism and the pain of racism as another form of grief because fundamentally you know I am I am an american i am multiple generations an american but there are still spaces and places and millions of people who don't see me on my own as a valuable human being and to know that there are people who just Don't forget about don't like me, but who actually hate me and are perfectly comfortable with the racist systems and processes that govern so much of our life in this country. Like, there is pain in that because there's no, just like the loss of my mother, like, there's no escape from it. You know, like, it is simply a fact of my existence that there are spaces and places where you know, my white husband and I have to be more aware and more careful because of my race. And that's heartbreaking. And I think the antidote both to, you know, the pain that I feel for my mom not being here and the pain of racism is love, like Black people choosing self-love in the face of racism and discrimination is the only way that we've lasted in this country since 1619 um you know me choosing to continue to love my mother and not only all that she's given me but her continued presence in my life even beyond the grave like love is the answer there there isn't really another option i don't think
0: I agree. And it's so beautiful when you talk about love continues on, even after the person dies. Um, and so you're beyond pretending to be fine. You've admitted to yourself that honesty you've, um, talked so eloquently about love is grief. Um, how do you view and think about these grief and the experiences now?
1: So now with grief I tell the truth and I I spend more time being quiet when hard things happen. You know, I know that while it may f- feel better in the short term to throw myself into work or other activities or you know, friendships, etc., I know deep down That one of the most important things that I can do for my grief is to just sit still and process whatever it is that is happening for me, you know, whatever it is I'm experiencing and not ignore it. Because I will tell you the one thing that I've learned through all of this is that the sooner we accept and give some acknowledgement to difficult emotions, the sooner they pass. You know, like the only guarantee about feelings is that they're temporary.
0: Why do you think when we know that we still have that urge to not sit still, even after all the things we've experienced, it still happens, right? What, what is that about? Oh, it sucks.
1: Like who wants to, who wants to just sit and think about whatever horrible thing has happened to them? You know, whether it's someone, you know, ignored you at a bar or a restaurant because of your race or, you know, it's your dead mom's birthday and she should be 65 today. And instead she's been gone for 15 years or, you you know, every once in a while, my son will do something and and it'll instantly make me think of my mom and I'm both happy and sad. And it's just, it's really hard being with difficult emotions because we're not, we're not trained to do it. And, And I think anything that is a deviation from what we've become accustomed to is always challenging. Like when you do a new workout or something like that, you know, like you're, you're utilizing new muscles and we have this sense that we aren't supposed to feel bad. So I think we often make it worse by judging ourselves. So there's like the, the baseline discomfort that nobody wants to sit with because it's uncomfortable and it sucks. Then there's the judgment that you often put on top of it. Then there's the idea that, it should just be okay. Like you should just feel good no matter what. Like it just, we make it worse, uh, with our judgments and, you know, preconceived notions about how we're supposed to feel, but we need to just get comfortable experiencing the full spectrum of human emotions. Like that's just a part of what it means to be here. You know, can you imagine, can you imagine not being sad, about some of the things that are happening in the world right now, like what kind of person would you be?
0: When you put it like that, it's so clear. And yet at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, we there is there's there's two things that go on. It's the societal expectation to be positive or to hide from these feelings. And also at the same time, our culture... Encourages some of the things we talked about earlier about pretending yeah. to be fine. Like there's virtuousness in working hard or being busy. Like there's a virtue yep. to be found in being that way and being avoidant. So that also doesn't make things easy either.
1: Mm-mm, mm-mm. And we have all of these celebrated ideas around self care that are mostly rooted in capitalism and white supremacy when really so much of self-care is telling the truth about what you're feeling and then giving yourself whatever you need to be okay with it and some days that may mean just taking some time to cry other days it might be a walk outside like sometimes it could be as simple as just stating out loud whatever it is you're feeling you know it doesn't it's not the mani pedi massage etc experience that's sold on instagram like it is being intentional about what you need in order to be okay today with whatever it is that you're experiencing
0: and that message you have around sitting still is so simple but so powerful as well it's hard (laughs) The hardest thing possibly to sit still. Um, And what else have you learned about grief? I'm sure you have so much to share um, with regards to that as well.
1: So one of the things that I talk about in my book that I think is just really important for people to understand, so many of us have heard of and kind of live by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's On Death and Dying. And she talks about the five stages of grief. You know, I have found myself included when I actually read the book before my mom passed away, I viewed the 12 stages of grief as this linear path, almost like the 12 steps program for, uh, alcoholics where you proceed from one to the next. And then at the end, you're pretty much good to go. That is not how it works. And those stages of grief were actually not designed for you or me when we lose someone we love, those stages were actually designed for terminally ill patients themselves. Like that was what her research was based around, working with terminally ill patients, seeing the, the path that they kind of went down as they worked on accepting the fact that they were dying. So this idea that there are these stages that you walk yourself through and then bye-bye grief is just false. And I think it creates a lot of unnecessary pain and confusion. So I wanna make sure that people understand that those stages are not for us. And even Dr. Ross herself has said, they are not steps on some you know linear path. They are feelings that she felt folks would experience while grieving.
0: So is there also something there about accepting that there is no end point, the grief will stick with us forever?
1: As far as I can tell, 14 plus years in, there is no end point. And what I will say is, you know, my grief and the immediate aftermath of losing my mom was way worse than it is today. So it has definitely gotten Easier over time, but there are still moments where my grief will completely knock me out. All these years later, even though you know I know what to look for, I notice it with my feelings. I check all the boxes once again, but there are still these days, hours, minutes, et cetera, where something will happen, and I will be just completely leveled by that loss. And so I really think it is an individual experience of learning how to live with it. Because what helps me when I'm feeling the loss of my mother might not be the same thing that helps you, Tiffany, but just being honest about whatever it is that you need and accessing it without shame or fear or concern. That's how we live with it.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for writing your book as well, because as you say, it's such an individual journey, but to read others' experience and hear other people's stories is such a powerful way for people to, yeah, start their own process of honesty around their own experience and work out what they, they need. So thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely.
1: Thank you for having me. This was great.
0: We have one little question that we ask at the end uh, to all our guests. As we said earlier, despite knowing all of this about we need to sit with our difficult feelings, pretending to be fine is something we do on a daily basis. Do you have any recent small examples you have of of something you've done uh, where you've pretended to be fine and, and you weren't?
1: I've gotten really good at just telling people exactly what's going on in my life. I'm having a really hard time coming up with one. I'm sorry. I feel like it. No, I mean,
0: (laughs) no, I mean, say more. So do you now live a life where you are so honest constantly that it's just not something you're pretending anymore, even small little daily ways?
1: Yeah. I, I truly can't think of anything. You know, like I thought I would have something around new parenthood Um, that has absolutely been a challenge in a lot of ways, but I've been honest about the challenges that have come with it. You know, whether we're talking about sleep deprivation or the shift in identity from just being Marissa to now also being Marissa Bennett's mom, um, my husband and son got COVID. I told everybody that was terrible. Uh, yeah, I am, I am very upfront and the other thing that I will say that has helped me be more honest, two things I want to say about it. One, I realized when we lost our pregnancy and I was much more honest and upfront about what I was experiencing and what I was feeling, I realized that I could do that and be that vulnerable because I am safe. Like one thing that we never talk about in regard to vulnerability is safety like you can't be vulnerable and put it all out there and you know just be honest about your day-to-day experiences, especially the hard ones, if you don't feel safe. And I think that is why vulnerability is often, and grief by extension, much harder for people of color, LGBTQ communities, et cetera, like basically others who are marginalized by society. So I think it's important for me to state that My comfort comes not only from experience, but from an acknowledgement of my privilege at this point in life. And I, I also try to be proactive about the things that I think are going to be challenging. Like my mom's birthday is February 18th. She died 10 days later. If you are any part of my world, work life, et cetera, you know that I struggle in February which then means if we have a conference call scheduled and it's the week between my mom's uh, birthday and death day and I have to text you and ask to reschedule, it's easier for me to be honest because I've set the expectations around something that is challenging for me. So I I think both being honest about your privilege and ability to tell the truth is important and then also being upfront about, what you might need and what you might be feeling if you know something is going to be hard for you is also important.
0: I completely agree. And just to add to that as well, based on what you said around needing safety for vulnerability, if anyone does feel shame for not being able to be vulnerable and still pretending to be fine, also, we don't want to add layers of shame on top of what you're already experiencing. So yeah, it's okay if you're doing that too.
1: Yeah. 100%, 100%. 100%. 100%. And I would just encourage folks if you if you don't feel comfortable being vulnerable to try and find spaces and places and people where you can be a little bit vulnerable. You know, like the world is hard and if you are grieving or dealing with some other challenge, I would hope that you can find even just one or two people where you feel safe enough to tell the full truth so they can help support you.
0: Well, thank you so much, Marissa. We'll put your book in our show notes um, and as well as other details of where everyone can find you to continue to hear your wisdom and really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, hosted by me, Tiffany Philippou. Anna Cordurado is the executive producer. Editing and mixing is by Chris Bannister. And you may recognize us because we've also got another show called Is This Working? So you can check that out too. And if you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review as that really helps more people find the show too. Thank you.